everybody. Welcome to AAA Sky. Today, we're discussing how to build an observatory with Alan and Aaron Slisky. I'm Stanley Fertig. And I'm MJ. AAA Sky is produced by the Amateur Astronomers Association of New York, whose mission is to promote the study of astronomy and to emphasize its cultural and inspirational value. Find out more about AAA at AAA.org. First, here's a word from our new president of the AAA, Alfredo Villegas. Hello, my name is Alfredo Villegas, and I am the new president of AAA. I'm looking forward to helping lead our organization forward over the next three years. It's amazing to contemplate that in 2027, the club will turn 100 years old. There have been many changes over the last few years, as I am sure many of our members have noticed. We have a new logo, a new website, and many new offerings, like AAA Sky. Looking out over the next few years, we want to bring even more value to our members, including very soon opening New York City's very first public observatory in the Bronx. And maybe in the next 12 to 18 months, a remote telescope that our members will be able to access from the comfort of their homes and personal computers. Meanwhile, we will continue to bring you great content, like what we are doing in our classes, and continue to engage with our local community by offering local observing events as we have done so for so many years. The beauty and the magic of the heavens is likely what has inspired so many of us to share in this great hobby. Creating greater awareness and passion for astronomy is ultimately the sustaining lifeblood for our organization. So I'd like to call out for volunteers to help lead the club forward on our journey to our 100th birthday. Please consider signing up and joining us on our adventure. Enjoy the podcast. Alan and Aaron Slisky are longtime telescope and observatory builders. Alan's experience goes back to building a radio observatory out at the University of Massachusetts Amherst in the 1970s, to helping the SETI project out at Harvard, Mass, and more recently relocating the 36-inch Bowler and Chivins telescope from Princeton to New Mexico, as well as a little bit of everything in between. Alan is also president of the Antique Telescope Society, which was originally founded by the AAA's own Bart Fried, and in his free time, Alan restores old cars and, of course, telescopes. Alan's son, Aaron, started building telescopes in 2009 when, in the ninth grade, he built his first telescope, a six-inch F8 scope for which he won the junior prize at Stellafane. He then went on to work at the American Association of Variable Star Observers, setting up observatories from Chile to Hawaii, as well as Cambridge, Mass., He's an avid builder and has helped with a relocation of the Bowler and Chivins telescope out to New Mexico. And in his free time, he competes on the Discovery Network show BattleBots on the team Rip Peroni, or R.I.P. Peroni, which debuted on January 5th. We spoke to Alan and Aaron in their shop via Zoom. Hello, Alan and Aaron. Welcome to Triple A Sky. Thank you for having us. Yeah, thank you for having us. So today we're here to talk about observatories. The subject is very timely, as just last week, the AAA announced the upcoming construction of New York City's first public observatory. This is in the Bronx. But apart from that, 
some of our listeners may already have or if not be interested in building their own personal observatory. What are the primary considerations involved in that? Why, why would somebody choose or not choose to build a small observatory? Well, thanks for having us. And uh, yeah, so building observatory is just, uh, it's not a small undertaking. And it's, it's something that requires a bit of maintenance and, you know, elbow grease. And it's kind of like owning a boat. If you, if you buy a boat and, you know, you only use it, you know, a couple times a year and it falls into disrepair and it needs maintenance and the software for the boat goes, you know, out of date and observatory is very similar. So I think you need to, you know, talk with your significant other and make sure that it's something you can afford and have space for. And they think it's cool or cool enough. And, um, have you actually spent time out in the field, you know, dragging your equipment out, taking images, doing the data reduction, and you actually enjoy it? You know, have you fended off the cold and the bugs and the, you know, weird weather and whatever happens, and uh, you're still doing it to this day? You know, do you, do you have equipment already? You know, can you reuse the equipment? Do you want to get better equipment? Or is this kind of the slippery slope to, uh, you know, getting a plane wave one meter you know that's <laughs> yeah you never know so but i'm going to turn that around what you just said if i were going to get a plane weighing one meter or even a half meter or something i would definitely want to put it in an observatory because i don't i have the way that around it. believe it or not i have seen one portable cdk 700 and i assure you it is not portable oh i believe i believe yeah monsters yeah. So, okay. Well, at least um, following your analogy with the boat, at least you don't have to straight barnacles off the observatory. If, hopefully. Hopefully not. Yeah. <laughs> but, the, you know, the other consideration is and that, you know, since you guys are going to be building an observatory, you guys can maybe mimic what the AtMob has, has done. Uh, the Amateur Telescope Makers of Boston received a generous donation from a friend of ours of a, a, a CDK-17 observatory you know full autonomous everything and it's taken a, a monumental amount of effort to get everything going i mean it takes we have this committee meetings once a week with you know five or six people and lots of people work on it and it turns out that when you have a telescope of a big enough size uh one person can't deal with the data you know it's it's just too much data to deal with for one person so if you can as a club or you know maybe there are people in your club who don't have land or, you know, don't have the means to build their own observatory if they can donate their time or money to the club. And so the club could get better equipment. I think that's just a much better use of resources, especially since you guys are more space constrained. Yeah. Well, fortunately we know about space for this observatory where it was last Saturday night. Um, right. And, uh, this is a project that has been going on for a couple of years for the AAA. Um, and yes, with multiple people involved and different kinds of expertise. And I'm certainly not going to try to dissuade anybody from supporting the club and its observatory efforts. I think that's, that's, uh, we need, every, we need all, all the heads on that. Everybody who can help is welcome. Um, that aside, somebody may choose to build their own. Oh, man, yes, a little bit more about that today. 
Uh, a personal observatory is a wonderful thing because like owning your own boat, uh, you get to control it and you do it in your own style and your own budget. And uh, it's a great hobby for people as they get older and wiser and richer as typically and have more time to to de to uh, dedicate towards this sort of thing. It's a it's a complicated thing, or it gets more complicated. If you want a visual instrument in a shelter, a dome or a roll-off roof, it's pretty straightforward. If you want to graduate to uh, imaging, it becomes more challenging. Everything gets fussier. And then if you want to graduate to autonomous operation, uh, and just tell the observatory what objects you need pictures of and let it decide when each object is best positioned in the sky, have it check the weather, uh, open the dome, take your calibration images, and you get an email in the morning that says you have pictures. Uh, these things are all possible today with off-the-shelf hardware and software. It's still relatively complicated to leave it all together, and you're dealing with a bunch of small vendors. You know, it's not Microsoft and Apple. It's it's uh, the guy that made the focuser. He's not the same one that made the filter wheel. And thank God, ASCOM, which is the communications standard, has made that a lot easier because there's a common language for, for devices. And yeah. more recently, uh, what's called Alpaca, which is the Internet of Things variation on ASCOM, uh, has really made it quite a bit easier for everything to talk to, to speak to each other in, a, in an organized session. But still, it's, it's a tremendous amount of detail. Uh, it's very stimulating uh, intellectually to assemble the equipment and keep it running and get it all configured as well as uh, the underlying mission, which is to get images of the sky, whether you're doing photometry of variable stars or whole sky surveys or pretty pictures or, or science. There's a wide variety of uh, jobs, tasks that are very suitable for small observatories. And because you have control over your own instrument 100% of the time, you can do things that professional astronomers can't. So there's there's also wonderful opportunities for Pro-Am collaboration. Uh, there's a fellow at Columbia who does the backyard astro astrophysics. And uh, he leans heavily on well-equipped amateurs for data because people can just decide, I'm going to look at this one star every night at least three times for the next 10 years. Right, and you, you, don't, you don't even need uh, cameras or anything. You could just have a mountain and telescope and you can, you know, do visual observations and upload them to the AVSO. And you, you, you don't need fancy equipment, I mean. It's nice, but you can do science, uh, you know, valid professional grade, useful science with a visual 
installation. And you can uh, do more of it with an automated rig, you know, CCD photometry. Um, so the, the range of tasks and interests that you might take on is, is quite broad. And there are, you know, with the internet, we now can find each other. So if you have an interest in double stars, there's, there's a bunch of kindred souls who will share their expertise and help you get started and happily uh, absorb all the data you can produce. Absolutely. I want to go back to um, two kind of threshold questions that Arian mentioned, um, which is space, i.e. You need, you need a place to put it, you know, mm -hmm. and significant other. <laughs> yes. That's always the, uh, that's always oh. the problem. So the space, um, the sort of the smallest observatory uh, that you really want is probably um, no less than seven feet square. That's yeah. kind of the, uh, we've built little autonomous ones that are about a meter cubed, but you can't work on them. You have to basically take a side off of them to work on them. So it's not really meant for people. Uh, but, but, you know, uh, the little, the little tiny domes are not quite worth it because you can't be inside at the same time, or you have to be, uh, you have to fold yourself like origami. And I, uh, <laughs> it's, it's not pleasant being the, the, being the young one that works on this stuff. I can tell you, it's uh, not a great joy to work in a tiny environment. I, I hear you. So some it well, you, you mentioned something else just there. Um, there are basically two kinds of observatories. Essentially. Mm -hmm. There's domes and roll-off roofs. Can you talk a little bit about that, the advantages, disadvantages of each? Dad, you can take this one. So there are uh, at least two kinds of domes. There's a, there's a clamshell. Astro Haven is, the, is one of the examples of that, where you can open one side or the other. You don't have to rotate the dome to track an object. Uh, and the the scope uh, comes to thermal equilibrium much quicker because it's out in the open. Right. Uh, your equipment is more susceptible to wind. Uh, there are a long list of advantages and disadvantages to each type. Ash dome is sort of the mainstream choice for a dome with a slit, and the slits open two ways. They go up and down, or they go side to side. Right. Uh, there are uh, observer domes, as an example of the other kind of opening slit. Uh, those are both uh, observer dome and ash are well understood, well made commercial items that you can purchase. They come with instructions. There are a handful of smaller domes uh, that are are used by. A lot of amateurs, and they're adequate. They need; they're not quite as highly engineered, but they uh, they can be coerced into working. Um, yeah, I think. Um, yeah, I guess the smallest, simplest one would be. They're, I think they're called pods. I forget the name of the company that makes them. Uh, and there's you know, this maybe a, a good half dozen manufacturers of uh, prefabricated. Uh, kind of cookie cutter 
uh, if you will, observatories. And we'll put links to them in the show notes. You can spend as little as maybe $10,000 or as much as you want. So the the sky is the limit in terms of a dome or yeah, building. Uh, amateurs have a long, long tradition of making domes, too. So Yeah. Yeah. Um, there's a lot of discussion on various astronomy forums like Cloudy Nights, etc., about um, anchoring the piers. That is, you have the telescope, you have the other, you have the, the optical tube assembly, which is on its mount, and the mount is on top of the pier, and the pier is anchored into the ground, or not, um, or how deep, below the frost line, via as, as complex as you want to make it, cement with rebar, without rebar, etc. Um, is that a necessity? Do you want to talk about that? So for a a heavy instrument, see, all, all telescopes, when they're operating, they're balanced, right? So you have to balance your German equatorial out and everything. So the, the, the load does not shift on the mount. It's, it's the weight of the mount plus the telescope pointing straight down. Uh, for imaging, uh, you're not going to be in the observatory. While that's happening, typically, so it's less important to to go through a lot of trouble to isolate the pier from the, the slab that holds the dome. Mm-hmm. For uh, large telescopes that might be used visually, there's a, certainly a, a reduction in vibration due to people walking around if you isolate the pier from the dome. Right. These are these are uh, traditional vibration and control measures that have been used forever with telescopes. Uh, it's less important than a lot of people make it out to be, you know, for, for visual use. Um, you just don't walk while you're observing and you keep the, you have to keep the little kids from jumping up and down on the other side of the floor while you're trying to observe Saturn eye magnification. So, Um, and the absolute accuracy of the pointing is not such a big deal anymore because you you just run a new pointing model and whatever small adjustments or displacements that might've happened since the last season, um, come out in the wash. Yeah. Or depending on the supper you're using. You know, automatic plate solving. Yes, exactly. So uh, as long as the deformation is elastic, in other words, it comes back to the same place when you remove the force, uh, all of that's compensated in, in software today. Uh, it's, it's better. There's no question it's better if you have a massive pier going down below the frost line and it's totally isolated from the building. It's not absolutely essential and that's probably the the trickiest part of building an observatory because we'll just afford cement right there are places you might choose to put an observatory that are much better for every other reason and the only limitation is i can't build this pier through the middle of the living room (laughs) uh you know don't worry about it so much You'll, yeah, you will notice some vibration. It will bother you sometimes, but 
if you if you're still, if you stand still, uh, you'll be able to see anything you want. So, if somebody wants to do this, what kind of help or contractors do you need to do it? Do you recommend somebody try to do it yourself? It depends on their skill level. Uh, there are people that are perfectly capable, and they can follow direction. They can generate drawings from you know, the plan supplied by the dome manufacturer. Uh, and that that's one end of the spectrum. Do it yourself. You know, garage door rollers and ropes and pulleys. Uh, it's not out. It's it's done all the time. And the other is the first phone call you make is to your architect, and uh, they hire the engineering team, and you tell them what you want as far as an aesthetic, and you do pay attention to make sure they they handle the the pier correctly. Uh, getting the pier installed north south is sometimes challenging for a lot of people. You know, we've I'm sure. We've seen several installations where magnetic north was used to align the pier. Oh. And around here, it's 15 degrees or so difference between true north and magnetic north. And there was one fellow who built this very fancy observatory in his backyard. And they knew that there was a 15 degree difference, but they got the polarity wrong. Oh, what? Well, so they, the pier was 30 degrees off. What you said argues for getting somebody that has experience to help you if you've never done this. Yeah. So what I would say is it's it's probably fine for the uh, a person wanting to build an observatory to basically pick out a lot of things. You know, pick out what dome, pick out what roll off, pick out the equipment they want, pick out the location. But when it comes down to the details, they really should either talk to somebody who's built an observatory before because they can say, "Oh my God, I put the door on the wrong side," and you know whatever. You know, the ice falls off right in front of the door, and I wish I'd put the door over there. Or they can talk to somebody like us who, this is sort of what we do. You know, we, we go around and we find all these weird details from all the observatories that we visit, and we put them into into use into smaller ones, and it, it so far has worked out fantastic. Now, is there any advantage to doing a wooden deck versus a concrete slab underneath, or doesn't matter? Absolutely. The wooden deck gets you off the ground a little bit. Uh, having some elevation, and again, depends on your climate, your microclimate. If you have cold, damp surroundings, you may want to get a few feet off the ground at least. If you're in a dry climate, it's not a problem at all. But you know, being able to leave your eyepieces next to the telescope and a notebook and having a little... little uh, a space for your expensive hobby is is a very re rewarding. Here in the Northeast, uh, if you're building a wooden deck, you want to make sure that it's not sitting on the ground, that it's mm -hmm. at least some inches, if not feet, off the ground. The thing, the thing I have to say about the wooden deck is um, probably not preferable unless it's a sealed surface, because what happens is you know moisture. Things happen, and uh, critters tend to uh, find their way, or they they make a nest underneath. In which case, you know, you, you have your nice foot and a half gap that you have to crawl under, and you know, deal with this annoyance. So, you know, basically, the more sealed you can make it, I think, the better. Uh, really, I thought 
Um, well, I understand sealing the floor. The floor, yeah, yeah. Because yeah, you know, otherwise you'll get cobwebs on your on your expensive equipment. But mm-hmm. um, spiders can get into anything. Oh yeah. For the rest of the observatory, uh, I thought you don't want it to be hermetically sealed because you want it to be ambient temperature, right? Well, you 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 want it pretty much sealed in. Uh, you decide every day based on the weather when to open the dome. Typically, at sunset, uh, and you let the dome acclimate. You may have fans that draw a cool, nice cool air in through the slit, blow it out around the edges to help that process. Uh, thermal control. Uh, when you've solved all the other problems, we get everything else working. Temperature effects are. Are significant. Yeah, sure. it's it's, it's, it's as, uh Yeah, the, the seeing through the slit. You know, if the telescope in the building is warm, you have warm air going up through the slit, and that really does distort the view. Right, right. But it's not as bad in New Mexico. In New Mexico, we can see maybe a, a thirty degree delta between the day and night, and it's it's pretty apparent. You know, around here, it's it's not as bad. You probably have to worry more about dew and. Things like that, but you also have to remember that your observatory, you know, is like eight foot cubed. And how long would it take to, you know, warm up or cool down eight foot cubed? It it doesn't take terribly long. You know, maybe it takes another twenty minutes for everything to come to temperature. But usually, when you're when you're talking about that equilibrium stuff, and in bigger observatories, it's a big deal because everything just weighs a lot, right? So, and there's more air, et cetera. Yeah. Yeah. One of you once told me that before you start to build or dig or spend real money, make sure you have a CAD diagram. Yeah, so efficient uh, observatories are most efficient and cost-efficient if the telescope just fits. Uh, obviously, you want to plan for upgrades. You may want to plan, depending on your wishes, if it's an automated observatory, people don't really have to fit very well. Uh, if it's a visual observatory, you're going to have guests over for dinner, and you're going to take your glass of champagne out and look through the telescope. You need a little more elbow room. Yeah, and, sure. you know, lighting becomes kind of an issue. You want, you know, red lighting directed at the floor and not into anybody's eyes. So you have to have, you know, more than dark sky compatible. You want really uh, downlight. You never want a path from a light source to your eye. Uh, but these are all things that have been done, can be done. Uh, go visit other observatories and get some ideas. Uh, ask the person that's been using it for a few years what works and what doesn't. Um, and you'll, uh, it, it, don't rush it. It takes, it takes time to do this. Uh, make wise choices. And plan a, a CAD model will show you how much room there is around the telescope for people. And also, depending on the telescope and the mounting, the pier doesn't go in the middle. It's offset. The, yeah, the, the pier is offset from the center because of the German the way the German equatorial mount works. And I would encourage people not to oversimplify the design model because over time, all of these, whatever detail you put into it becomes useful. 
and if you want to design a new widget or you want to, well, do I have room for another telescope? You know, can I bolt another a small refractor on the side of my reflector to do wide field imaging? Now you want to know, and you'd, you'd rather do that sitting in front of the laptop instead of out in the cold. Yeah, well, that raises an interesting question. Um, what about warm rooms, which I guess we should define? So uh, warm rooms, whether it's walking back to your house or having something that's integrated with the observatory, I think is kind of an essential thing because you're never done building these things. <laughs> you, you need a desk and a little bit of a workbench and some shelves and and when you're uh sort of commissioning the system or adjusting things it's nice to do that close proximity the other uh fun thing about you know the warm room and all that that usually you want to have a warm room if your observatory is kind of far away from any other warm room like your house or whatever and uh, one of our clients actually built this amazing observatory up in New Hampshire called the Gemma Observatory, and it's off-grid. He has a little uh, solar panel array and batteries inside the observatory, and he did an unbelievable job with architects. Yeah, and uh, um, we can put a link to that in the show notes. If you yeah, yeah. But it, it just goes to show you uh, astronomy stuff doesn't really need a lot of power, so... You know, say you have something in the Catskills and, you know, there's a great location for an observatory, but there's the house isn't near it. Uh, don't be afraid about using batteries and uh, some solar panels and, you know, maybe a little generator if you're out there. But it, it really doesn't take a lot of power to run an observatory. And it, it, it kind of cuts ties of, you know, it has to be next to the house or, or this or that. And uh, wireless communication is really not a problem anymore, so... It's 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 really not that big of a deal. So don't don't uh, put horse blinders on saying it has to be in this little area or you know something like that. I want to come back to something that we you mentioned earlier because um, we've been talking a lot about domes. We haven't talked much about roll off roofs. So what can you tell us about that? So uh, a dome is kind of a. Uh, a tricky thing because you have to buy one and making one is, is sort of difficult, but a roll-off roof is a relatively simple structure um, that is pretty easy to build if you uh, kind of know what you're doing. If you, if you see other examples, you could figure it out, but you can also uh, buy them off the shelf. But sometimes it allows you to, um, you know, if, you, if we were talking about warm rooms, and uh, if you want a warm room, you can have the observatory on the left and the roof can roll off onto another little building that is your warm room, you know, a little shed or whatever. And it, it, it's, it's a very cute way of doing something, but it's also great for if you want to have multiple telescopes. Since you don't have a slit with a dome, now you can have two, four, eight, you know, however many you want in there. Yeah, and I imagine that it's much cheaper Besides being less complex, it's, it's basically a square rectangular structure. Right, right. Railings that the roof can slide off of them, too. And, and depending on your zoning codes, it might be more accessible. Uh, you don't have to explain what a dome is to the building inspector. <laughs> if the neighborhood, the neighborhood council or your homeowners association might be, it might be a better fit. Or your neighbors. Yeah, exactly. 
So there are uh, practical considerations for roll-off versus don't. Yeah, and you can actually check out, we can put in the link, uh, this company called Backyard Observatories. They travel the country building these things for people. And they basically have a bunch of cookie-cutter designs, and they show up and go gangbusters, and uh, the thing goes up pretty lickety-split. Yeah. And uh, they're, they're, they're pretty good buildings. They, they do need some uh, adjustments. Uh, overall, a, a pretty good design and uh, sort of tried and tried and true and tested, and they're re- they're pretty affordable. So, yeah. Well, it's definitely put a link to that. I, I have heard of them. Yes. Yeah. Um. So, um, thank you both. Before we go, there's one question which we always ask all our guests on Triple A Sky, which is thoroughly unrelated to astronomy, or it doesn't have to be related to astronomy. Which is the following, because we are a New York-based club and a New York-based co- podcast, um, what's your favorite place in New York? I mean, since you, you come from the Boston area, so I imagine that it's not Yankee Stadium. Correct. <laughs> uh, well, I don't, ha- I don't have that uh, rabid home team belief, so I would... I would enjoy Yankee Stadium as much as any place else. Uh, we did, uh, Bart Breed set up a visit to uh, the observatory out on uh, Custer Institute out on Long Island, and we had a wonderful visit there. Sort of a local antique telescope society uh, get-together where we had, I don't know, eight or ten people, and we, we toured a few locations on Long Island and, and spent a day and an evening at Custer, and that was—I thought that was really quite, quite some good example of citizen science. Yeah, I know that's one of Bart's um, preferred places. Thank you for having us today. Well, thank you for spending your time with Triple A coming. Okay, so let's talk about observatories in general. Did you uh, have any questions listening to this? I did. Okay, so I was trying to figure out what is a warm room that you guys were talking about? Ha ha ha. Okay, so a warm room is just what it sounds like. It's a room that's warm, as opposed to <laughs> being out with a telescope in the dead of winter and freezing uh, various body parts. Um but um, sometimes when people build observatories, they build a separate room apart with, with a heater in it called a warm room. Um, the reason for that being that you can't put a heater in the same room as a telescope, or then you get air currents between the outer outside air, which is colder, and the inside air, which is warmer. That creates currents, and that'll mess up any pictures you try and take. So... Um, but sometimes people get tired of being cold, so they build a warm room right next to the room with a telescope, which has a heater, and you can put your computer in there and kind of remote pilot the telescope from within the warm room. No, I, well, see, I didn't realize that. These are the technical details you have to think about before you build your dream observatory. Um, I'll, have, I'll have to keep that in mind when I build mine. <laughs> Yeah, there are around 10,000 technical difficulties to keep in mind because it's a really 
I think I, if nothing else, I think that came out of the interview that it's a really complex thing yes, to build an observatory. It seems like a daunting task between finding the right people to to build it and then doing it correctly, right? Do you have the space? You know, you don't want too small of a space. You know, do you want to have people over? You have to have a whole vision for your observatory. That's exactly the right word, a vision for the observatory. <laughs> no pun intended. <laughs> yeah. Um, and whenever you're doing something which involves pouring concrete, then you really have to know what you're doing because you don't mm. get a second try. That's true. That's true. So another thing I was curious about from this interview, um, why do you have to have an isolation from the floor with your um, telescope? Oh, okay. Yeah, they did talk about, we, we were talking about a pier. And, mm -hmm. you know, when you think of a telescope, most people, I mean, amateur telescopes, not the humongous professional ones, most people imagine that they're sitting on a tripod. And of course, there's nothing to prevent you from building an observatory and putting a, tri a telescope on a tripod inside of it. Um, the disadvantages of a tripod are that inevitably, at some point in time, you're going to trip over it or kick it. And um, also, it does transmit vibrations from the floor if, if somebody is jumping around or, or walking right next to it. And that will make the image in the eyepiece you're looking at or in the camera dance a little bit just from the vibration. Mm. So if you put the telescope and its mount on the top of a, essentially a pole, which we call a pier, <laughs> and that goes straight into the ground and down into the ground. For, mm. That's a whole other story. Um, and then basically that the floor of your observatory has a round hole in it or a square hole, depending, um, which is not quite in contact with that pier or pole. Um, then you can jump around all you want on the floor of the observatory, but it's not going to make the image dance in the eyepiece because there's no way to transfer transmit that vibration to the telescope because it's isolated from the floor. And that's what they were talking about. Um, mm -hmm. Of course, it's a lot harder to build than just buying a tripod and putting, setting a thing up on the tripod. But if you're building an observatory, then you're already... Uh, doing some things which are difficult. I think I was, for me, one of the biggest things I, I learned from this episode uh, was just that people had personal observatories. I don't know why this didn't occur to me. I just assumed this was something that was for you know educational purposes or uh, scientific purposes. I didn't realize that people had had that. Um, in terms of, well, why would somebody build an observatory, um, the real, I think the real issue that uh, it solves is uh, no setup time and no take-up time, take-down time. That is, if you have an observatory, you open the door, you go in, you turn it on, and you're going, you're ready to go. The thing is already aligned and points at whatever you want and and there's no setup time. Whereas if you're carrying a telescope and a tripod to some dark sky location, you got to get there. You have to take everything out of your car or however you carried it. You have to set it all up. 
um, and align it and get everything working properly. And you can, and then do the reverse when you want to take it down and pack it back up. And you can spend a half hour to 45 minutes doing each of those. Um, and some people, I guess, get tired of doing that when they want to look through a telescope. The other solution to that, which I will point out, is that um, uh, Cyril Dupuis, who's the founder of Vaunus, the makers of Stellina and Vespera telescopes, is precisely because of that reason that it takes time to set up and to take down when you want to go observing, that he created telescopes that are smart telescopes where you don't have to do any of that. You just basically set them down on the ground, push a button, they figure out where they are, what they're looking at, and all that, and they're ready to go. Um, that's Amazing. that's another solution. It's not cheap either. <laughs> and now, it's time for Looking Up where we tell you about upcoming astronomy and AAA events in and around New York. On the 16th through the 18th of June, weather permitting, we'll be observing at North-South Lake, which is a dark sky site in the Catskills. This is a members-only event, and we carpool to get everyone there, and along with their telescopes. If you're a member, don't miss it. On Tuesday, the 20th, We'll be observing at the High Line at 7.30. On Friday, the 23rd, we'll be out in force with three observing events going on that evening. At the Lincoln Center, the Josie Robert Plaza, at the Evergreens Cemetery on the border between Brooklyn and Queens, and at the Floyd Bennett Field by Jamaica Bay. Pick the location closest to you and go there for a night of telescopes. And for those of you from Staten Island, we'll be observing from about 8 o'clock on the night of June 24th at Great Kills Park on Staten Island. We also have a solar observing event at Pier I on Sunday afternoon the 25th. View the sun safely through solar filter telescopes with a AAA. On Tuesday evening the 27th, we're back with our telescopes at the High Line. And on Friday, June 30th, We'll be observing again in the evening at Lincoln Center. You can find more information and updates on all of these events, as well as directions to all of these locations on our website. That's our show. Tune in next time when we continue to bring you the latest in astronomy and astronomy-related topics. Until then, stop by www.aaa.org to learn more about the AAA and how you can become part of it. AAA Sky is a production of the Amateurs Astronomers Association of New York. Audio editing and original music are by Preston Staley. Our technical producer is Parker Bossier. <laughs>